And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, like I told you, one of the things I pride myself on about this show is that we have like smart guests. Uh, <laughs> and today is a, a day similar to the rest where we have a brilliant guest on, none other than Mr. Andre Perry. How are you feeling today? Doing well. Pleasure to be with you and, and on this wonderful podcast. Well, thank you so much. You know, my show is unique in that we ask all of our guests, regardless of who they are, the same first question, which is to walk us through the arc of their career. And so you've been a professor, you've been in higher education administration and entrepreneur, and now the work you're doing at Brookings. Can you walk us through each of the stops in your career and talk about what you do now for Brookings? Yeah, you know, as the story was told to me, I'll start from the beginning. As the story was told for, to me as, um, as a child, when I was born, there was a deal made between my maternal grandmother and a woman by the name of Elsie Boyd. I call her mom. At the time, my biological mother, um, she had already had a child of 15. I mean, when she was 17, um, she probably abused. We don't know that, but uh, we do know that my father um, was a heroin addict. He was in and out of prison and he was murdered inside of a state prison outside of Detroit, Jackson State Penitentiary outside of Detroit. And so I grew up, I was informally adopted, raised by a bunch of, with a, alongside uh, a number of other brothers and sisters, some biological, some not. And, and it really informs a lot of the work that I do today. I um, went on to a place called Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Um, and my first um, job, I actually led a, a a camp that would expose the children of migrant workers to college. So I worked on with a lot of immigrants, and um, I worked. Uh, I developed an affinity for the issue. I um, then um, did a career towards undocumented immigrant educational rights. So I worked on the DREAM Act early on, got my PhD, um, analyzing the subject. I, I remember a day that Orrin Hatch, Republican, uh, 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 actually was a sponsor of the DREAM Act. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah, so I did a lot of that work. Um, and then after 9-11, I was actually in D.C. People came in um, to a conference room that we were in and said we were under attack. And it was 9-11. And I remember at that point, I wasn't necessarily worried about my life because the plane was heading our way. Actually, two planes were heading our way. And but I kept thinking the Dream Act is dead. And so I need like and, and that was my whole research agenda. Eventually um, became an assistant professor at the University of New Orleans. Um, there um, I got there before Hurricane Katrina. Katrina happened. And I just became very involved with education reform, um, ran for charter schools, became disaffected with the movement, largely because of the firing of Black teachers. And, and maybe even more important is the lack of hiring of Black teachers in the movement, um, which defies educational equity. We might can talk about that later, a little later on. Um, and then there I wrote a report or a, a book chapter for the Brookings Institution. And we played footsie for about, you know, 10 years or so. And then I finally got picked up at the Brookings Institution. Or, uh, and I became a founding dean. I was a founding dean. 
of a college. And um, but now I'm at the Brookings Institution where I measure the value of assets in black communities. So most people know me for my work on housing devaluation and appraisal um, bias. So very, that's very, where I am now. Yeah, very, very important issue, particularly the housing appraisal. My wife and I went through that. And, you know, black folk, if you listen and make sure you take down your pictures before you get your house appraised. Uh, one of the reasons why I brought you on the show is you do a lot of work at the intersection of race and equality and real estate, like we've been talking about. And, um, it's a time where we're seeing folks buying the block, as they say, and we've got folks like Mike Epps in Indianapolis, for example, redeveloping his own neighborhood. Talk about what your research has found in this space. And, um, how do black folks maximize their investment in real estate? Yeah. So in 2018, my colleague, uh, Jonathan Rothwell and David Harshberger and I released a report on the devaluation of assets in Black communities. What that essentially uh, means is we wanted to look at um, um, the value of home, the impact of race on the value of home. So we measured um, the uh, the list price of homes in Black majority neighborhoods, places where the share of the Black population is 50% or higher and compared them to places where the black share is less than a percent. Now, um, a lot of people will say, oh, it's it's lower because of education and crime. But those are things you can control for or attend to in a study. And so mm-hmm. uh, we, um, we control for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics. And what we found is that homes in majority black neighborhoods are still underpriced um, um, are still underpriced by 23%, about 48,000 per home. Cumulatively, there's about 156 billion in lost equity in black communities. And I, and I, I always just put this in perspective for people to understand that we throw out billion, millions of billions all the time, but 156 million is the equivalent of 4 million black owned businesses or the amount black entrepreneurs um, um, fund to start their firms. It would have paid for more than 8 million four-year degrees based upon the average amount of a four-year public education, replaced the pipes in Flint, Michigan 3,000 times over, covered nearly all of Hurricane Katrina damage, and it's doubled the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. It's a big number. So when, when things go wrong in Black communities, what do we do? We blame Black people. We don't look at the policies and practices that extract wealth and opportunity um, from those um, places. So, and that's why I say, like, it keeps my teeth white that that there's nothing wrong with Black people that ending racism can't solve. We need to um, identify the policies and practices that extract wealth and figure out ways to restore that value. Now, how do you maximize the value? Again, we have to restore the the value specifically to individual um, owners and people and potential owners, meaning we need um, tax credits and new mortgage products. And I mean, you could certainly argue for reparations. And the reason why I say you need to restore value directly to consumers is because if you invest in place, which a lot of our initiatives do, you know, the opportunity zones give tax credits um, um, to investors for investing largely in brick and mortar. If you invest in brick and mortar and not the people, you raise property values and people ultimately are pushed out. So you, you need to invest in people, but you do need to invest in place because when you have devaluation, you also have wanting infrastructure, municipal services are lower and, and the like. 
Um, and then finally, if you when you invest in people, you invest in place, you have to divest in racism. If you never get rid of the racist practices, you'll just end up in the same position you were in. So that's, in, in my estimation, how um, you maximize housing equity and other and other assets as well. Give me that, give me that quote, again, quote again about ending racism. There's no yeah, problem. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. I like that. I'm going to steal that one. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I've been been following you and your work and seeing some of your tweets as we were preparing for the show. You talk a lot about racial wealth gap. And I saw a recent tweet of yours about wealth increasing across all racial groups, but the racial wealth gap between black and white folks actually increasing in the last few years. Now, you will get pushback on that yeah. from White House because the White House says that's bullshit. That's what they call it that because they say they have shrunk that racial wealth gap. But respond to that criticism or what, what they are articulating is not necessarily a criticism, but what they are articulating. And then if President Biden or Kamala Harris Vice President Kamala Harris called you today and asked you what the federal government could do to re- reduce the racial wealth gap. What do you tell them? Well, there one, um, the data uh, are very clear on this. Um, w- wealth is increasing across all racial groups. So during the Biden administration, wealth for black people increased, no question. But so did wealth for um, white families, median median wealth for um, white families, and 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 that should not be a surprise to the Biden administration, who is uh, you know working on structural inequality, um, and because one of the things that you just you know can't undo are are the benefits of of racism to white people over centuries, and and much of that investment or, or much of that equity that white people could could get that black people um, um, did not get or were prohibited from getting shows up in the stock market where you see um, where wealth is actually, you know, really dividing is in the stock in equities. So so in the stock market. And so um, we used to, we, we commonly think of, Oh, we, if I, if I get a a big chunk of money, I'm going to invest in real estate, but the returns on in the stock market are much higher um, than for housing. And so most of black wealth is concentrated in housing and, and business ownership. So when we talk about the expanding wealth gap, we really, we what we really need to talk about, are there new forms of wealth creation um, that we can develop? And this is why, it, um, and you, sh- if you haven't al- already, you should invite Derek Hamilton 
friend and colleague, Derek Hamilton, who works on baby bonds. If we're, if we're not figuring out a way to get new forms of wealth, um, in addition, we need new, for in housing, we need new mortgage products. Um, one of the things that um, I am actually encouraged by the um, and the, there's been an expansion of what people know know as special purpose credit programs, mm-hmm. and people need to understand what this is. Um, and I don't want to get too wonky, but a few years ago, the GSE get wonky, get wonky. I don't okay. mind. The GSEs, the Freddie and Fannie, started to incorporate rental payments in their underwriting practices, meaning if you pay your rent on time, um, that will be rewarded in in the form of of credit, and you'll be seen as desirable to get a mortgage. When they did that, it enabled lenders to say, hey, we can actually issue new mortgages that don't require a down payment how discrimination really shows up in in Black people's pocket is a lack of a down payment in a household, the inability to deal with an economic shock during a a crisis, a pandemic, or a tech bubble. Um, You know, those are the moments. So um, what this new, uh, what these activities occurred in the last uh, two years banks now can issue mortgages without a, um, a down payment. Bank of America is trying this in five markets. I can't recall the markets, but I applaud that effort. I also applaud there. I have to say this about the Biden administration. Um, Over the last three years, we've seen more done in housing than any administration, arguably since 1967. I mean, it's no, it's no, it's no. Um, that's not by happenstance. I mean, Marsha Fudge, Fudge is over there doing the work. Somebody who knows how to do the work. Absolutely. And and in my issue in particular, they used my research to to create the Property Appraisal Valuation Equity Task Force, which issued thir- uh, 23 action steps of eliminating appraisal bias. Um, and, and, and so it, there's been a reckoning in the real estate industry. With that said, and, you know, this is undeniable. If there's one area that is rife with discrimination, <laughs> I mean, it's it's housing. And talk about, talk about because I I have some white folks, some good white folks who listen to my show all the time, and I want to do a PSA for them. Can you talk about appraisal bias? I will tell you that we had we had uh, two different appraisals done on my home. Um, my wife was distraught about the first one, and there was about a three hundred thousand dollar difference between the first appraisal that was done and the correct appraisal that was done. So, I mean, it affects everybody, but talk about that. Yeah. You know, after we released this report, you started to see, I I mean, I started receiving uh, uh, emails from couples, families who were going through a refinancing and they felt they they were lowball. They said, "This, this can't be right. And what they would end up doing is something that is actually um, a practice for many Black people. They started, quote unquote, whitewashing their home, removing the, yeah. the, the, the Black pictures, as you stated, the Black books, the cocoa butter, if you will, the, you know, all oh, jet all, magazines and no everything on the table. <laughs> None of that. <laughs> Remove it. 
And then they also take a step um, further. They get a white stand and they get a white friend to stand in as the owner. An appraiser comes back. Oftentimes, the difference is hundreds of thousands of dollars, as you mentioned. Now, um, but let's be clear. That's a form of individual racism, which is different, in my opinion, than the systemic problems of appraising. So you're always going to have individual appraisers who are biased. But the, the, the appraising, which relies heavily on this price comparison approach, and, and those who've been through either buying or selling or refinancing to understand this, to get a sense of average price, an appraiser will compare one home to, an, to others in the community. Mm-hmm. The problem with it, and this is, this is a classic definition of systemic racism. The problem with that is if you compare uh, one home to another in a neighborhood that's been discriminated against, you effectively just recycle the discrimination over and over again. You can you can diversify all the appraisers you want. If they use the same practices, you'll get the similar results. So the devaluation of assets happened at an individual level with between um, an indiv- uh, individual appraiser. And there's actually some recourse for that. You can sue uh, an appraiser, an appraisal company. You can sue a lender. But when you're talking about um, practices, that's more, it, we don't necessarily have all the tools to, um, at least an individual don't see, uh, we don't see how how am I being discriminated against at a community level. Right. And so so both are at play. Um, one is at a scale. So I'm always saying, hey, individually, it's a problem. And then in fact, and we actually, because of our work, the Federal Housing Finance Agency released the appraisal data recently. And we could calculate how much a bad appraisers, appraisals uh, factor in into that 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 value gap, and it's about 20%. Homes in Black neighborhoods are twice as likely to be appraised uh, under the contract price. And when they are, and when um, they are under the contract price, it's 15% for Black people under the contract price. It's in Black communities, and it's only 1% under the contract price for in, in white communities. And the difference being, if you're a percent under, the deal's probably not going to fall through. If right. you're fifteen percent under, yeah, that ain't the, that ain't the same price. No, right. So it, you know, so it is a problem in black communities, but it's not the only thing, and that and that's where I think our work is going to to move forward. We we need to account for not just appraisers and appraising. We also need to look at lending, underwriting insurance and all these other factors that that more or less act like appraising in in these markets. So you also do a lot of work uh, around the quality of black lives in majority black cities, right? Yeah. We're talking about places like Jackson, Memphis, Birmingham, and smaller towns like my hometown of Denmark, South Carolina. Um, and people may not realize it, but many Black Americans live in cities like this. Talk about what your research has found about the quality of life and the state of white of Black wealth in these cities. And what should policymakers, particularly our mayors, do um, uh, 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 about investing in these cities to make Black lives better? 
Yeah, it, just like um, housing, many of our assets are devalued. So it's not just um, homes, business for businesses per se. One of the my favorite studies that we did, we um, scraped all the Yelp data from businesses all across the country. And similarly, we controlled for education, um, all the uh, spending power, all those different things. And what we found pretty much astounds that um, Black, Brown, and Asian-owned firms actually score higher on Yelp than their white counterparts. But they get less revenue as they are those businesses are situated in Black neighborhoods, meaning the the perception of the neighborhood is impacting the perception of the business. You yep. don't want that. And it also, it, it makes clear that the elders were absolutely right when they used to say, our ice is just as cold. Yep. Our ice is just as cold. And they were right. Empirically, it holds up. And so for, if you are a Black political leader, you have got to invest in the and what I what we consider the underappreciated assets and community, meaning um, if you invest in the things that are going to give you um, returns that greater than you would expect, those happen to be in black communities. So we often don't make this argument for, the, you know, for econ, um, the economic argument for uh, diversity and inclusion, all these different things. And, and because it's a moral issue, certainly. But I do point out, you are cutting your nose to spite your face when you're not investing in the underappreciated assets. And that's what's happening um, all over the country. And it's stripping individuals and communities of wealth. Because it's not just Black people that are losing out. Guess what? It's um, city budgets are yep. losing out. School district budgets are losing out. State budgets are losing out. So um, it, it it is a really a matter of cutting your nose to spite your face if you don't invest in the things that are worthy of investment. We we just saw this is included, um, and this is breaking news as this um, as we're recording this. Um, Spelman College got a hundred million, a hundred million dollars. The no, 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 not no, 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 a hundred. Million. A hundred million. That big is a hundred. That's big. Now, mind you, all of HBCU's endowments, all of them combined. All 102 are less than how Harvard's. Exactly. You thought of Michael Lomax interview with, with Jeff Bennett the other day, didn't you? Did you yeah, just say- absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so all of them combined is, is less than all. So what this investment really, for me, what it signifies. This is long overdue. Um, um, educational institutions, just like our home, are also devalued. That that our Black institutions, our, 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 our Black organizations are treated like Black people. They are devalued. So, But when you, when you restore the value that's been extracted by racism, you'll get outside, outsized growth. So for me, this is a no-brainer. Invest in Spelman, invest in Morehouse, um, in, 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 invest in Hampton, invest in Fisk, invest in, in, in all of 101 HBCUs. And mind you, also uh, the, the HBCUs that are community colleges as well. We need to invest in, in them as well. So 
Um, this is a no-brainer, um, in my opinion. It, 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 it's not just a gift. It is an investment that will yeah. yield returns. One of the things and, and one of the examples I give and just just think about this and make sure I'm looking at it right. But one of the things that that I've been um, that I the examples I give is I worked with a gentleman who shall remain nameless. Uh, and when he tried to purchase the Carolina Panthers um, and, you know, we put in a, we were trying to put in a bid of about one point eight billion dollars. And we scoured the entire world trying to find black folk to be a part of this ownership group. And we did not we weren't able to locate a singular black person outside of, say, for maybe one in Africa who it was able to write a check by himself of that amount, whereas David Tepper purchased it for $2.2 billion and wrote a $1.8 billion check out of his pocket. I mean, we just don't have that type of wealth. Is that is that an accurate way to a depiction to look at it? Oh, absolutely. And, and what I think we do a disservice to ourselves is when we're constantly looking at the Forbes list of of, of, of as an indicator of power, we should always look at median wealth because when people say, um, "Oh, this person has two billion or a lot of that is tied up into many different investments. It's their worth. It's not necessarily liquid assets. And so for, for I mean, there's just very few of us, particularly in the United States, you you really have to move to the continent to 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 identify anyone with a billion dollars that can just write a check for a billion dollars. That's just um, not happening in the black community, but that's intentional. I mean, we have um, kept people from growing wealth and what that translates to is, and why people are most concerned about this wealth gap is not just about the money. It's about when you have wealth, you can control who, who else gets the wealth. Right. So, so many people who who develop billions of dollars, they they change the rules of the game to to advantage themselves. And so, it wasn't that long ago where a CEO made you know relatively a closer amount to the average worker. That has been blown out um, the window, largely because of the wealthy controlling policy. Um, at a um, federal, state, local, and corporate level. So I got a couple more questions for you before I let you get back to your, your, your smart work over there at Brookings. But another area where you've done uh, incredible work is Black children in K-12, through um, particularly from the vantage point of the school reform efforts in New Orleans post-Katrina. Um, what did you learn about what it takes to help uh, Black children, particularly Black children that are from lower-income homes, thrive in school, and do big education reform efforts like what happened in Louisiana, make it work. Yeah, and and let me be clear, and I, and I speak to, with the level of authority here because I ran charter schools. I was part of the education reform movement. And, and I mentioned I became- Shout out to Howard Fuller. Yeah, and I, and I, and I, you know, and I love, and I still believe education needs reforming. It is a system that does not um, lead to outcomes in our favor. Um, with that said, I also felt just like with every other system, um, white reformers uh, um, ended up this strong arming, strong arming it. And and what I learned from that entire experience is something that I repeat over and over again: education does not predict for wealth; wealth predicts for education. Mm-hmm. That if you 
reform schools and do nothing with housing, you do nothing with jobs, you do nothing um, with transportation and other wealth drivers, you're going to have limited impact on educational outcomes. And that's what I think we don't get. Um, A lot of the education reform movement at the time said, um, if, if we just fix the schools, everything will be all right. And it was their way of abdicating our responsibility for dealing with these other things. I, again, I and I and it's hard for me to um, to speak on this because people will say uh, because of the all or nothing conversation in ed reform. W- education needs reforming. It needs reforming at the state level. We need new um, uh, funding formulas that don't bias wealthy communities that sort of distributes uh, revenue equitably. The the, streams of revenue, new streams of revenue. We need and we do need an emphasis on teacher quality. We do need an emphasis. We do need um, school leaders to have more autonomy in making decisions. I agree with that. But you're not just going, but you also can't just use charter schools and other reforms and gut black power as a way to get edu- uh, educational outcomes. And that's what I think was happening um, in the edu- education reform movement. It was um, charter schools were used as a wedge to um, um, d- disrupt unions, school boards, power. And, and that's where it was like, okay. Any basic researcher in education, if you look at the factors that influence outcomes, most of them occur outside of the school. And yet we were putting everything on teachers and everything on um, these small things. And it's like, nah, that that just doesn't make sense. It has to be involved. I, I know one of the things that I was when I became disaffected was how silent my education reform um, colleagues were when Bobby Jindal, who was a um, Republican um, governor in Louisiana at the time, he fully endorsed charter schools. But he also enlarged in the criminal criminal justice system. He also gutted higher ed. He also did all these other nefarious things. I said, you can't turn a blind eye eye to that because you're essentially creating conditions that make our work harder. So for me, you have to look at education as part of an overarching system, not as a panacea that will cure all ills. My last question until I get to one of the more important ones. Well, you've also got a book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Why did you write the book and what do you want readers to take away from it? Yeah, I wrote the book because, uh, one, because a lot of uh, readers don't want to hear a bunch of numbers. <laughs> they want They also want to hear uh, some stories. So I basically, uh, all the numbers I'm talking to you about, I put contextualize them in stories. I talk about how um, these things really manifest itself in the day-to-day lives of people. So what people will take away is some of the data that I, I, I said today, but it's, it's coming from the lived experiences of people. So that's why I wrote the book. I, people can always read the report you know, at Brookings. You can go to Brookings. But they're not going to read 
they they will read the report. Read the report, ladies and gentlemen, and read the book. How can people follow you on social media? How can people keep up with the work that you're doing? Yeah, at Andre Perry Edu, and you can also subscribe to the Brookings newsletter. You can go to Brookings.edu. Get the get the good Brookings research. It's it's. I think the um, we are one of the preeminent think tanks. People don't know what a think tank is. We are a research organization that is focused on policy, and we look at global, federal, state, and local policy, and and influence some of the. Um, uh, most important policies of the day. I appreciate you, Andre Perry. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Shout out to everybody over there at Brookings. Hey, thank, hey thanks for having me.